Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for each and every one of these ladies, these mothers here in our church family. Lord, we thank you for the blessing that they are to their own families, but also to our church family, the life, the heart, the passion, the example of Jesus that we see in them. And Lord, on this Mother's Day, I I, I pray that they would know just how much you look down upon them in a sense of favor, blessed by their hearts, their love for you, their love for their families, their love for others. And Lord, I pray that today you would just put a special blessing upon them. And Lord, as we open up the pages of your word today, we ask God that you would speak to us today. That you would in, in, encourage our hearts and just bring insight for all of us here, including the moms. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. And if you would, turn your rivals to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. You know, I believe that the mothers are the real superheroes of today. That godly mothers are, are the real superheroes because you ladies wear so many hats. I mean, from Uber driver to counselor to cook to cleaner, to coach, to doctor. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And did you know that 88% of laundry is done by women? Totaling 390 loads of laundry and 5,300 articles of clothing A year. That averages out to 7.5 loads per week. And a recent study has shown that without mothers, most of the laundry, especially men's, wouldn't get done (laughs) until it started to really, really smell like a egg egg salad sandwich left out in the sun. I mean, you know, that type of thing. And you know, moms change a lot of diapers. Those of you who are young moms, did you know that a mother averages 7,300 diaper changes by her baby's second birthday? I think you should get an award for that. And moms are always on call. In fact, the average preschooler requires his or her mother's attention every four minutes. Or 210 times during the day, they're going to hear, Mom, Mom, Mom. So guys, don't say that to your wife as well, all right? You know, Mom. But, um, you know, I'm really not sure, ladies, if we would be able to survive without you. I mean, seriously. In fact, I remember years ago that when our ladies would go on a women's retreat, and I always, always was a big fan, really in great favor of, you know, the women getting away for a weekend to just seek the Lord together. But I got to tell you, as a pastor, it was my least favorite Sunday of the entire year. And the reason is, is it was the lowest attended Sunday of the entire year because a lot of the husbands just, they they weren't even going to try to get their kids ready and bring them to church on that Sunday. And the ones who did, I mean, bless their hearts, they would come 
Some of them brought their kids in their pajamas. I'm not exaggerating. Others would have them come and it'd be like, you know, they'd be wearing a plaid shirt and striped shorts and, and uh, lots of hats, you know, to cover up the bed. And I'm not even going to try to brush that hair, just wear a hat today. You know, that, that, that was the norm. And um, I am thankful to say that the men have outgrown that. And I do appreciate that, guys, that we've grown in that way. But you know, moms, you guys are so pivotal. I remember Chuck Swindoll telling the story of when his wife went into the hospital. And so he was left with his three kids when they were small. And she left him very precise meal instructions. How many of you ladies would do that for your husband? Okay, just show hand. Precise meal instructions. Well, on day two, he asked his kids, who wants to go out for breakfast today? And they were all like, yeah, that sounds great. So this was his idea of taking his kids out to breakfast. He took them to the local 7-Eleven, bought them the package of white powder donuts and Slurpees for breakfast, all right? And the idea of eating out was they all sat on the curb outside of the 7-Eleven to eat their breakfast. And to this day, his kids said, that's the best breakfast they've ever had. All right? (laughs) But man, I hope that all of you guys and all of you kids that are here, tell your mom regularly how much she blesses you, how much she means to you, not just on Mother's Day. You know, I know as a, as a husband, I've been so blessed by my wife, Denise, and the way that she has mothered um, our kids. And I'm so blessed by my mom, who sits right over here every single Sunday. And um, just the way that she poured into me, supported me, has continued to, to this very day. Um, very, very thankful for my wife and my mom. I'm blessed. But you know what? Mother's Day and Father's Day are becoming difficult holidays for many. Many in our church, as well as many in our culture, and the reason is as our society has become more and more broken, people have become more and more selfish, and the result of that has been this, more and more people have felt hurt, let down, and even abandoned by their parents. And I meet people all the time in our church that that's their story, that they're just thought and and memories of their parents haven't been good ones because their parents have not been there. They haven't been good examples. Or some have told me my parents went through a messy divorce and neither one of them knew what to do with me. And for many of them, as they've now become parents themselves, that has motivated them to really, really be very present in the life of their own kids. So, So that is a good thing. Even though they went through, you know, a tough time as a kid, and, but they, they, it's motivated them in their own parenthood, but they still carry the wounds of a messed up childhood as adults. Well, today in Acts chapter 9, if you want to turn there, Acts chapter 9, we're going to be focusing on verses 32 through 43, where we're going to see here a a lady in the church there in Joppa who we don't know if she was a literal mother, but she was a mother-like person to many in her church. She's the woman with two names, Tabitha and Dorcas. And we're going to look at her life today. The title of my message is Encouragement to Mothers and Others. So look at verse 32. That's where we're going to start off to just bring the context to this. It says, now it came to pass as 
Peter went through all the parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden for eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And then he arose immediately. And so all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa, there were certain, a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is also translated Dorcas, and this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. Pause there and give me your attention. Now, last week, we started Acts chapter 9 in our journey through the book of Acts, and we saw the first part of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who will become a very important person in the, the story of the, the church as he takes up. Um, a great part of the rest of the book of Acts because he becomes known as Paul the Apostle. So last week we looked at the first part of his conversion story. Next week we'll look at the second part of his conversion story. But today in Acts chapter 9 we have the story of this woman named Tabitha who's also called Dorcas. And I want you to catch this. She's a woman that Luke, who's being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the book of Acts, he devotes an entire paragraph to tell her story because she was a woman who had a tremendous impact upon her church family and she is a woman whose life can really speak volumes to all of us here now verses 32 through 35 which we just read are transitionary verses because what Luke is doing here is he's moving from the story of Saul of Tarsus to the story of Peter and we saw last week how in his conversion, the Lord had told Saul of Tarsus that he was going to be used to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But this is what we're going to see in chapter 10. In chapter 10, we're going to see that it was actually Peter. He was the one that the Lord starts this ministry to um, the Gentiles. And Luke tells us here in the verses that we just read how Peter gets to Lydda. And then from there, we're going to see how he gets to Joppa. And it's going to be there in Joppa that he gets summoned to come and share the gospel with a Roman centurion and his whole family. By the, His name was Cornelius. And we'll see that as we come to chapter 10. So the story of Tabitha is really a bridge for this work that God is going to be doing through Peter and Paul through in, in bringing the gospel to the Gentile world. So let's look at her story. Let's look at verse 36 again, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. It says, at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable, charitable deeds, which she did. Verse 37, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her and laid her in an upper room, and since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and they sent two men to him, imploring him to not delay in coming to them. And then Peter arose and went to them. And when he had come, they, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him, weeping, showing him the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out. 
And he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. And so it was that he stayed, Peter, stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a Tanner. And that's where we're going to pick up his story in chapter 10. But here we have the end of Acts chapter 9, the story here of this gal Tabitha being brought back to life again. And if you're taking notes, there's four things that I want us to note about her life. The first thing I want us to consider is her city. Our text tells us that that she's from Joppa. And Joppa was a major port city of Israel. It was a city that was located on the Mediterranean coast, about 30 miles west of Jerusalem. And so goods from all different parts of the world were shipped to Joppa regularly, which meant that there would always be a lot of different people from different places that would be walking the streets of Joppa. And as a result of that, because it was the shipping center, it would be a great place for the Lord to spread the gospel as different people from these different places were getting saved and then they would go home with the gospel. It was a great place to to bring the gospel to the Gentile world. And the story of Tabitha being raised from the dead would be a launching pad for the gospel to spread to many other places. The second thing I want us to consider today are her name. She has two names. In Aramaic, her name is Tabitha, but in Greek, her name was Dorcas. Now, I just got to say, any of you who are pregnant right now and expecting a little girl, you don't want to name her Dorcas, all right? It's just not, not a great name, definitely not the short of it. I mean, hey, Dork, come here. You know, that just wouldn't be good for your little girl, all right? So don't do that. Tabitha, on the other hand, that's a beautiful name, but get this, both of these names mean the same thing. They mean gazelle. And this is interesting because gazelles were symbolic of exquisite beauty in the Bible. And the word gazelle is used in the pages of scripture to describe beauty and grace in many different places. For example, take King Solomon. Now King Solomon, he wrote the book, The Song of Solomon, and and King Solomon was really, really great at affirming his wife's beauty. And I want all the guys, all the husbands, I want you to listen here. This is a little freebie for you. It's important that you affirm your wife, that you affirm her beauty, that you affirm her character, because if you don't, somebody else will. And Solomon is really, really good at this. He's good at affirming his first wife, his first love. And he's really a great example for all of us men. We can definitely learn from his example that we see in the book of Song of Solomon. But guys, listen, listen. Don't try to use his lines, all right? Because they don't translate. They don't translate to today. Let me give you some examples. He said this to his wife. He says, honey, your teeth are like a flock of sheep that have just been shorn and washed. What does that mean? You know, I think the translation would be, you have a nice smile. You sure have white teeth and I love when they're brushed. I mean, you know, I think that that's kind of what he's saying. In another place, he said this about his wife. He said, your stomach is like a round goblet and a heap of wheat. Now, guys, listen to me. (laughs) 
<laughs> you don't ever want to describe your wife's stomach using the words round or heap, all right? You don't, you don't want to do that, okay? In another place, though, he said this. In fact, two times in the book of Song of Solomon, he says, your breasts are like two fawns of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Now, my wife and I were in Lake Tahoe several years ago. We were doing a couple's retreat there. And I, I read that, that verse, and I, and I asked the question. I said, how do you approach two fawns? And a lady just blurted out very carefully. Um, <laughs> but seriously here, Gazelles were symbolic in scripture and in that culture really of exquisite beauty. Gazelles are also mentioned in Proverbs as as being linked to grace, being graceful. And King David used the term to describe the swiftness of his army, the swiftness that they were like gazelles moving across the mountains. And so Tabitha's name brought to mind those images of beauty, grace, and swiftness in time of need. And although she was given that name at her birth, I think everybody that knew her could say, man, her name fits her very, very well. Because that's the kind of woman that she was. They might say of her that, that she was beautiful on the inside as well as on the outside. Now let's consider number three, her faith. We're told in verse 36 that she was a disciple of Jesus. And if you think back to Acts chapter 8, we read in Acts chapter 8 that a great persecution came upon the church there in Jerusalem, and it caused the church to become scattered, right? But it tells us there that, that all of those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the gospel. So undoubtedly, somebody shows up in Joppa, and they start preaching about Jesus, and it was there that Tabitha came to faith in Jesus, and she goes in with all of her heart. She becomes a disciple, one who's fully committed to Jesus. And she's this woman that has this great reputation among her church family because she displays her love and devotion to Jesus and the church in very practical ways. And so that leads us to consider number four, her impact. And there in, in chapter 9, verse 36, it tells us, this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. The phrase good works there speaks of general acts of kindness to people. But the phrase charitable deeds is more specific and has to do particularly with acts of mercy that, that relieve the burdens of the poor and the needy. And we'll see in just a moment what those good works and charitable deeds were. But I want you to notice the next thing that it says about her there in verse 37 is that she dies. Notice it says, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him. That means begging to not delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. Now, this is interesting. We're told that according to the Jewish customs, when she died, they washed her body in preparation for burial. And I want you to picture 
That moment as just the tenderness of these people in the church taking this, this dear saint that they just love so much and they're, they're washing her body. They're just getting it ready for burial. But as they prepared her body in the traditional way for burial, note this, they don't immediately bury her. Instead, we're told that they took her and they laid her in an upper room. That tells me they weren't ready to let go of her yet. And so when they hear that Peter is not too far away in Lydda, and God has just used him to to heal a, a man who was paralyzed for eight years, they say, go to Lydda, get Peter, and beg him to come back with us. And I think their thinking was this, that maybe, just maybe, Peter might be able to pray for her, and God will bring her back to life. Notice verse 39. And so when they had come, or when he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. Don't miss the significance of this. Here at Tabitha's bedside, we don't find a sorrowing husband, we don't find any children weeping for their mother. We don't even find any parents mourning for their daughter. The only ones who are there are these widows who have gathered by her bedside because they loved her so much. And our text tells us why. Because she had made them coats and garments. And there in Joppa, that port city on the coast in the winter, the winds would come in and it could get so cold. And, and there's Tabitha that she, she makes these widows, these coats. And, we, and our text tells us that they're showing Peter. And I think they're, they're showing him because they're, they're wearing them. They're like, look, she made this for me. Look at the stitching. Look how wonderful, look how thick this is. Man, this is so great. In the winter, it takes such good care uh, to keep me warm. And here we see Tabitha's motherly impact because in a Jewish culture, when a woman became a widow, it was a serious thing. I mean, it's always a serious thing. But in that culture, it was extra serious because there were no pension plans. There was no social security. There was no welfare system. And so it was up to a family to take care of their widowed mother or widowed grandmother. But the problem with these widows is that they had turned to Jesus. They had become Christians. And so for many of them who had become Christians, they were viewed by their immediate families that they had abandoned Judaism that they had abandoned their Jewish faith and Jewish roots, and so a lot of them became ostracized and abandoned by their own families, and so quite literally, the church became their family. And it became the responsibility of the church to take care of these widows, and this is where Tabitha saw an opportunity to use one of her gifts. She's like, you know what, I can sew. I'll make some coats. I'll make some garments I'll make some coats for these, these widows to keep them warm in the winter months. And I want you to catch this. That through this simple act of love and kindness, it made a huge impact on her church family. 
And don't miss this, that a whole paragraph of the Bible is devoted to this woman who just used her gift, this simple gift of sowing to bless others. And this reminds us that God takes note of the littlest things that we do to bless others. And I hope that that is an encouragement to all of you moms here Because although sometimes your kids or your husband doesn't notice these little things that you have done, God does. He sees. And he is going to reward you for that. But I want all of us here to just think for a moment. What gift, what talent have you been given? And are you using that to bless others? Are you using that to to bless those in your church family? Maybe your gift is cooking. Do you ever use that to bless somebody else by bringing them a meal? Maybe somebody who's sick. Maybe somebody who's, who's, you know, just had a baby. Maybe your gift is in cleaning. Maybe it's in crafts. Maybe like, like Tabitha, you can sew. You know, yesterday there was a group of guys here, and I just so love this, that they're carpenters, and so they just donated their time. I come up yesterday after the end of the women's event to help with the, the, the reset here, and they're out back here, and they're fixing the deck that desperately was broken and corroded, and they're just donating. I just love that. I love seeing that. Maybe, maybe that's your thing. Maybe you're great. Your gift is in fixing things. Maybe it's being a mechanic that you're able to, to fix cars. Listen. You want to bless others? Make yourself available to the Lord and watch what he does. Watch how he uses you. Tabitha's gift was sewing. He says, okay, I can make coats. I'll make some coats for these widows. And they were blessed. And her impact was so great and so greatly appreciated. Don't miss this. That when she dies... They call on Peter, go get Peter and beg him to come back with you that just maybe, just maybe that the Lord will use him to bring her back to life and bring her back to us. Now, I want you to think about this. When James the apostle died, the church didn't even pray that God would bring him back to life again. I don't know if it was like, you know, we got 11 other apostles, you know, we don't need another sermon. You know, I don't know what they were thinking. But when this gal dies, it's like, go get Peter. Let, let's see if God might bring him back to us. Because there was no one like Tabitha. That's how they felt. There's no one like her. So I want to ask you this question. How do you want to be remembered? You know, as a pastor, I have had the privilege of overseeing hundreds of memorial services, celebration of life services when, when someone has died. And I gotta tell you, some of them are so touching. Because during it, they'll have a time of sharing where people come up and they're sharing a memory or what this person meant to them. And, and there's been so many times as I'm li- listening to one pa- person after another get up and share that I thought to myself, I wish I, I wish I knew that person better. I wish I knew them better. Like, wow, that's just like an amazing person. But I got to tell you, there's been others that I've done that have been kind of sad because very few people got up to share. And the ones who did, it was like they were trying really, really hard to say something nice. How do you want to be remembered? What do you want people to say at your celebration of life service? 
When it came to Tabitha, the believers in Joppa thought, we can't lose her yet. So they go and get Peter. He shows up. People are mourning. Notice verse 40. It says, but Peter put them all out. And he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he called the the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. Wow. Imagine that. Imagine how just incredible that was. But I, I wonder, though, if Tabitha was maybe a little miffed. I mean, she's in heaven, you know? It's like, like, really? You're sending me back, you know? I mean, I wonder. So I just got to say, if I die, please don't pray that the Lord brings me back, all right? Just let me be there in glory. But, but seriously, God had a purpose in this. He had a purpose. Look at verse 42. And it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. And so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. So God used Tabitha's life and gift to impact many in her church family. And the Lord used her death and resurrection to impact many with the gospel there in Joppa and then throughout the world. And there's the lesson for us in this is you never ever know how big of an impact your life is going to make. That's a lot of times for most of us, we're, we're not going to know until we get to heaven. But your life, it can make a big impact. Now, as we close today, I want to say two things to those of you here who are followers of Jesus. And then one to those of you here who are maybe not followers of Jesus. So first of all, to those of you who are believers, those of you who are followers of Jesus, I want to ask you the question again. Are you using your gifts, the gifts that God has given to you, are you using those to bless others? Now, some of you might respond to that by saying, well, I don't know what my gifts are. I'm not sure what my, what my gifts are. And so I want to share a, a little illustration with you that, that maybe will help you to discover what your gifts are. So turn with me, Romans chapter 12. So one book over, Acts, Romans, Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, we see Paul is going to use an analogy here of how the church is like the human body that has, it's one body with many different parts that have different functions. Your functions of your hand are different from the functions of your feet. And so he's going to illustrate this. And as we go through this list of seven gifts that he mentions, I want all the moms here to just think and pay attention. How many of these gifts do you use on a regular basis to bless your family? So notice verse three, he says this. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body and individually members of one another. Now pause there, and and now here's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that, look, there's no one here who's more important than anybody else. We all are part of the body. 
So don't think too highly of yourself. We all have a place. We all have a function. But then he says in verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Everybody say, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. And he who teaches in teaching, and he who exhorts in exhortation, and he who gives with liberality, and he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul lays out these gifts. These are gifts that God has given. Gifts of the Spirit. And he divides these gifts into two categories. Those that expound the word of God and those that expand the work of God. He gives us four of them that expound the work of God or the word of God. And the first he mentions is prophecy. Now prophecy in the New Testament has more to do with foretelling or declaring the word of God than foretelling. In the Old Testament, it was primarily foretelling. It was predictive in predicting the future. But in the New Testament, the gift of prophecy is more foretelling or declaring the word of God. The word prophecy means to cause to shine forth. And so this is what prophecy is. Really, it's, it can be even preaching that is causing the word of God to shine forth. Prophecy expounds on the word of God by declaring truth. But then he mentions the word, the gift ministry. Those who have the gift of ministry. Ministry depicts truth. The gift of ministry is the same gift that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 12 as the gift of helps. And the person with the gift of ministry or the gift of helps depicts the truth of God's word and God's love by being a servant to others. By serving others. Their lives are literally a living illustration of the truths of God's word. Tabitha has this gift. This gift of ministry. This gift of helps. She's depicting the truth of of God's love and grace by making these clothes, these coats for others. It's that helps ministry. Think about that. That, that, that helping. It's a, that's a spiritual gift. That God can use. And then Paul mentions the gift of teaching. So prophecy declares truth. Ministry depicts truth. Teaching defines truth. The pastor teacher who takes his church chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the pages of the word of God, he's using that gift, that gift of teaching to bring the sense of God's word. He's defining truth. Now, here's what's interesting. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, desire the best gifts. Well, how do I know what the best gift is? I'll tell you. The best gift is the gift that is the one that is most needed for the situation that is at hand. That's the best gift. So yesterday, after the women's event, I showed up here to help be a part of the reset team, okay? Now, right now, let me pause for a minute. Right now, I'm using the gift of prophecy and teaching. And that's the best gift for this moment as we're gathered here to study the word of God. But yesterday, I showed up to be a part of the reset team to reset the, the sanctuary. And you know what? No one that was there, no one said to me, hey, Pastor Rob, can you just preach while we set up the chairs? No one asked me to do that. No, he just gives a little taste of what tomorrow's going to be like. No, 
They didn't want me to do that. (laughs) Because the best gift yesterday that was needed was to be the gift of helps, the gift of ministry, to help lay out the little measuring things that we have to figure out where these chairs go so it's not just chaotic here. It's putting all the tables away and and, and that sort of thing. That helps ministry. And I got to say this, I'm so excited. As of this morning... We have 26 of you that signed up to be a part of our reset teams as we're trying to form these four reset teams of about 10 people, 10 people each. So we need about 14 more people, but, but I just so love the heart of you. So say, I got that gift. I, I can be used in that way. And it's awesome to think that in just such a simple act of service, you are spirit, using a spiritual gift that God has given to you that you will be rewarded for. Well, the next gift that Paul mentions is the, the, the gift of exhortation. And the person with the gift of exhortation is one who develops truth. You see, the word exhort in the Greek is the word parakaleo. And that's very similar to the word that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit. Because he called the Holy Spirit the parakletus, which means one called alongside to help. And that's what the person who has the gift of exhortation is doing, is they come alongside others to help them develop in their walks with the Lord. It's what we call here one-on-one discipleship. It's coming alongside someone to show them how the truth of God's word applies to everyday life and everyday living. It's essential. We'll see later in the book of Acts, a guy by the name of Barnabas will do that very thing with Saul of Tarsus. He comes alongside of him to help him become Paul the Apostle. So those first four gifts are gifts that expound the word of God, but then Paul mentions three that expand the work of God, and the first one that he mentions is the gift of giving. Talking about giving financially, he says those who give, let them give liberally or freely, and giving, the gift of giving, it's a gift that expands the work of God of God, the work of the kingdom of God. He mentions next the gift of leadership, or he calls it in 1 Corinthians 12, those who, with the gift of administration. It's those who lead, he says, and this speaks of those who are gifted in putting together systems and processes to help things flow and come together. It's those who are gifted organizationally. When we form these four reset teams, the the men and women who are going to lead them, they'll have this gift, this gift of administrations, this gift of organization. And then he mentions the gift of mercy or the gift of compassion. The gift of mercy is, is the ability. It's a gift of being able to feel another person's pain. That's what mercy speaks of. It's getting into somebody else's skin and feeling their pain. It's, it's having empathy. It's, it's being one who can listen to others in their pain, and you're taking that in. You feel their pain. So here's the question. Which of those gifts do you have? Still not sure? Let me give you a little test, a little example Because oftentimes we can discover what our gifts are in how we respond to a need or a situation. So imagine this. Imagine my little grandson, Josiah, he's five, somehow sneaks out of children's ministry, 
And he decides that he wants to bless Poppy. That's what he calls me by bringing me a glass of water. So somehow he, he gets a real glass, fills it up with water, somehow makes it past our ushers and comes down the center aisle. And he's walking down the center aisle. He's like, Poppy, I got some water for you. And just when he gets up to these stairs, he trips. He falls backwards. The glass goes flying out of his hand, lands on the concrete, breaks all over the place. Now, what would be your reaction to that situation? Now, if your reaction was, what a klutz, and who let that little kid in here? That probably means you're not saved, and you don't have any gifts at all, okay? (laughs) Just kidding, sort of. Um, But but listen, the person with the gift of prophecy, he he would see this as a a moment to inspire. Do a little preaching, to pull Josiah aside and say, you know, Josiah, life is just like this. There's a lot of pitfalls out there, a lot of things. So you got to watch your step. You got to watch where you're going. The person with the gift of teaching would see it as a teaching moment to say, now, Josiah, when you are carrying a glass, especially one that has condensation, you got to hold it with equal pressure in both hands. Very, very important, you know, that you do that. The person with the gift of ministry would be like, where's a broom? Where's a broom? Where's a mop? I'll clean that up. The person with the gift of giving was, how much did that glass cost? I'll write a check for it, you know. I'll buy a whole new set, you know, for it. Um, That would be his response. The person with the gift of leadership, he would be one who would be like walking up these steps and going, who designed these steps? I mean, they're kind of steep, and I think we should adjust this so this never, ever happens again. And the person with the gift of exhortation would be one to come and say, come on, Josiah, let's go get another glass, another cup of water, and I'll walk right beside you so I'll get you up there next time. You know, that would be their response. And the person with the gift of mercy would come and just want to put their arms around him and go, you know, start crying with him and going, you know, Josiah, it's okay. You know, I did the same thing back in the third grade. I know how you feel that would be their response but you know what that's the body of christ that's the body of christ that that the lord has put together all of us with different gifts different people all responding in different ways but all necessary and important to the situation so what would be your response The way that you would respond could be a great indication of the gift or gifts that God has given to you. So my first question to those of you who are believers here is, what's your gift and are you using it? My second thing I want to say to those of you who are believers is this. You know, Tabitha dies and the Lord brings her back to life again. And that's a very, very rare occurrence. We don't see that very often in Scripture. But as believers, we do have great hope in death because we know we're somebody who loves Jesus. We know where they go. That's why Paul, the apostle, would write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, lest you sorrow as those who don't have any hope. It's like, hey, when somebody dies, yeah, it hurts. We sorrow, but, but we don't sorrow as those who don't have any hope because we know that the person goes to heaven because Paul said to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord, and that is our hope. Peter would say, we've been born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have this hope in death. Jesus would put it this way. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks this question, do you believe this? 
And this is what Jesus is telling us there. Is that a believer in Jesus never ever experiences true death. Because true death is this. It's to be separated from God for all of eternity. You see, the Bible says that all of us here have sinned. We've missed God's mark. We've missed his standard. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That it's our sin that has separated us from being in relationship with God. The Bible says that we are all dead in our trespasses and sin. And if a person dies in that place, doesn't give their life to Jesus, and they die in their sin, that's what hell is. It's to be separated from God for all of eternity. And the Bible says that hell will be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I think a big part of it will be is those who realize they had an opportunity to be saved by just placing their faith in Jesus and they didn't do it. And so they're going to be just kicking themselves and gnashing their teeth and weeping for all of eternity. So Jesus says, whoever believes in me will never die. You're never going to experience true death. Oh, the body's going to shut down, but you, when you die, you go to heaven to be with my father. And then he asks the question, do you believe this? And that question really divides mankind into two categories, those who believe and those who don't believe. Those who have hope today and those who have no hope. As believers, we have hope. We know, we have an assurance is what that word means, that when we breathe our last breath here on planet earth, our very next breath is going to be in glory. And so for those of you here today that aren't following Jesus, I have this question for you. Are you ready to meet God? You see, the Bible says right now that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are separated from God because of your sin. But I've got great news for you, and the great news is this. Jesus is in the business of bringing dead things to life. And he can bring you to life, and your heart to life today, if you just put your faith in him. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. Thank you, Lord, that you've taken so many of us here, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that, Lord, you saved us and you rescued us, that you went to the cross and paid the price for our sins and you, you, you were laid in the grave but rose again on that third day to give us life. And, Lord, I pray for anybody here today that does not have that assurance that doesn't have that relationship with you, that they would come today into that relationship by putting their faith in what you did for them. That they can move from that place of being separated from you by their sin and move into relationship and have that assurance by putting their faith, by saying, Jesus, I do, I believe you.